Welcome to For the Love of Books, a podcast by North Lancashire Libraries. Hi everyone, welcome back to the North Lancashire Libraries podcast for the love of books. My name is Chris Wilson and I want to wish you a big happy book week Scotland because this week has been a national celebration of reading and I hope you have been enjoying a great read and getting involved in some of the fantastic events that have been going on around the country. But today on our podcast what we have got is an interview with the fantastic Carol Johnson who is the author of the brilliant novel Mirrorland and she is here to tell us all about it and also a little bit about her past writing as a short story writer as well. So listen close and get comfy and enjoy the interview. So Carol, thank you very much for joining us on our podcast today. It's been a great pleasure to have you join us and um, I'll give our, our listeners a little bit of background on you um, in case they, they haven't heard of you before. Um, so you were originally a short story writer and then you've been published uh, worldwide with that and you seem to have written quite a lot of short stories from, from what I saw on the internet, which is was fantastic. And you're also originally from Lanarkshire, um, not North Lanarkshire, I don't believe though, is it Kirkluck I saw that you were from? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I thought I, I read that somewhere and I couldn't find it back to kind of double check it before we <laughs> got, got my notes together um, and your first novel is Mirrorland and um, which is what we're going to be talking about in the podcast mainly and um, that's your first novel and it's also been optioned for TV I believe is that right that's quite exciting stuff yes it, weirdly um, it was actually optioned for TV before I sold the book to Ooh. any publishers it was it was um, preempted by um, Heyday TV in the UK. Um, Heyday Films were the ones that did all the Harry Potter movies. Ooh, that's um, and there's a, it's a kind of joint venture between between <laughs> them and NBC Universal in the US. They have Probably. this kind of joint venture, so that yeah, they preempted it, and that that kind of I think I've got them to thank for. It, it started everything rolling, if you see yeah. what I mean. So, so it then very quickly went to auction in the UK and the US for the for the book. After that, but yeah, so it's it's been optioned. It's hard not to um, get overly excited. I mean, a yeah. lot of the time nothing happens, nothing comes of it. But yeah, but yeah, I, I I'm really really hoping um, that, that that happens. So it's for a TV series rather than a film. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it would make a fantastic TV series if, if um, having read the book, um, it would be about one to see. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll see that at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, now, so having read a little bit about you, um, I discovered that you decided at one point that writing wasn't likely to be a very sensible career. Um, and you decided to become a radiographer instead and another job title, which I'll confess I couldn't pronounce. So I decided to go for radiographer <laughs> instead. Um, but you still had a bit of a writing bug, though, didn't you? Uh-huh. Um, I think, you know, I, I've always written, it sounds really twee, but um, I remember in primary school, I, I must have been pretty young, I don't remember exactly what age I was, but I remember this moment where I realised that all the other kids didn't do what I did, you know, I just always <laughs> wrote wee stories. I used to write a lot of um, graphic novels for my wee sister. And um, every year I used to give her this, this graphic novel, this kind of whodunit series, mm -hmm. which was about a bunch of care bears killing each other and she'd have to guess you know, <laughs> who, who did it. And I did that every year for years and years. It was like a Christmas present. 
Um, I also used to have this really long running um, series that I wrote about a Glasgow uh, detective. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he was really grumpy. He was kind of like a functional alcoholic, you know, the usual kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, I used to save up these these terrible stories for when my family were on holiday with me. You know, they'd be stuck in a caravan or a tent or you know a family room in a B and B, and I would make them read these stories. And um, at the end of every chapter, I used to kind of say to them, you know, who get them to guess who done it. And I'd be devastated if they guessed who it was. And I kept that going <laughs> for years and years and years. But in high school, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if it was the same um, for you, but I remember in second year, so kind of just before we started doing standard grades, that I won a short story competition. And my reward for this was to to stand in front, I think it was the whole year or possibly two years and read this story out. And I got bullied relentlessly for about, you know, two, three years after that. It's quite a daunting prize. (laughs) It was was horrendous. (laughs) But after that, you know, I I was never really asked to, to write anything again. You know, in high school, after a certain point, creative writing just wasn't a thing. You know, in English, all you ever kind of did were critiques of yeah. other books, you know, usually sort of old dead men um, or plays or poems. And, and I never really did anything creative. And I think at some point I started to to believe that if you wanted to be a writer, that that was a kind of it was similar to wanting to be a rock star or to, to be yeah. an Oscar-winning actor. You know, it was technically possible, but it was actually very unlikely. And people like me were not, you know, they, that wasn't really likely to happen for me. So I, I kind of dismissed it out of hand. The other, <laughs> the other thing as well was that back then, if you wanted to study English um, at university, you did English Lit. There were no creative writing courses. There was nothing like that. And my parents were both teachers and I was just filled with this terror that if I studied English, that's what I would end up you know, <laughs> becoming. So the, the only other subject I was any good at at school was physics. And so that's, that's basically what I, what I pursued instead. I got a, a BSc at Glasgow Cali uh, University. And then around about the age of 20, I think it was, I moved down to Essex for work as a radiographer. And then I did that for the next 10 years. And then I became, I worked, I moved into sort of medical physics um, in cancer services. And I did that for the next 10 years. So, so I really, I would say in my early 20s, I didn't write at all. It's the only period in my life when I didn't write because I had kind of decided on this career. This is what I was going to do. And, and, and I just stopped writing. I sort of abandoned it. And then I kind of came back to after that very slowly. Yeah, and and at that point, obviously, you must have wrote a lot of short stories because because you have obviously got quite a large back catalog back catalog of short stories published um, throughout the world. Um, it's quite it's, it's very impressive. Um, and was there a reason behind deciding to write the short stories uh, first before tackling a novel? Um, because most most authors that we talk to tend to, to kind of have get stuck into writing a novel, or or was there always a novel and they can go at some point? There, there was and there wasn't. In, in my teens and 20s, I really struggled to finish a novel. I had hundreds on the go, but I couldn't, I couldn't ever finish a novel. I didn't have 
you know, the discipline to do it, I think. I always had these, what I thought were great ideas. I would sit down and, and then I would get kind of sidetracked. I'd never be able to finish it. Or I'd get another great idea and I'd think, oh, I'll write this and then I'll come back to that. And I, I just couldn't do it. Never, ever could do it. And then I think it was around about 2005, six, something like that. I read um, the Stephen King book um, on writing, which is, it's kind of, it's nonfiction. It's, it's half memoir about his life. And then it's half a kind of writing guide, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, I loved Stephen King. I'd always loved Stephen King. I'd read a lot of his short stories over the years and I sort of preferred them actually to, to a lot of his novels. And he kind of suggested, if you can't write a novel, why do you start writing a short story? So that's really where it started. And then I did that, you know, for the next kind of 10 plus years, like you said. I mean, I think short story writing, it teaches you an awful lot very quickly. Um, There's a much quicker kind of turnaround. It, It teaches you, I suppose, pace and, and how to get to, to the heart of a story very quickly. I mean, obviously you, you don't have a big word count, so you, you have mm-hmm. to make every word count. You know, you yeah. have to start in the middle of the action. You can't go on and on and on and on and then start the story. So it, it teaches you how to write um, a lot better, a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And it also, I think the biggest thing that it taught me was how to become my own best editor. Really? Because I think the main reason that people struggle to finish novels, it's certainly the the main reason that I did, is because if you can't see where you're going wrong, if you kind of grind to a halt and you don't know why, or you can't, it's just, you know that it's not great, but you don't know why, you can't move on any further. Because with the short stories, you're edited so often by so many different people, you get to know what you're doing wrong yourself you know yeah. if you if you're able to critically look at your own writing and say well that's what's wrong with it and that's what I need to fix and this is how I fix it which usually involves deleting an awful lot of stuff that you've written <laughs> if you can do start to do all that then you can write a novel and so I think really for me all those years of short story writing meant that you know when I started having this idea about a big story you know a story about estranged um, identical twin sisters and a, a, a sort of decades-long um, love triangle, a big kind of creepy old house and a huge scary secret. That's There were a lot of components to the story, but I felt able to actually write it at that point. Whereas I think before then, if, if it hadn't have been for for all the, the short story writing that I'd done, I wouldn't necessarily have been able to do that. Yeah. Uh, when I was looking at some of your short stories, they do sound quite different from from Mirrorland on the surface of it, at least anyway. Um, having featured in collections like the Best Horror of the Year collections and the Best British Fantasy collections, do you think it's a big change um, or do you feel that Mirrorland still fits into those kind of genre tags um, for, for, as a book? Yeah, I I think it, it does. It doesn't feel like a big change to me. I mean, I understand why why writers get put into boxes or get labelled, why they have to be. You know, publishers need to know what kind of book they're buying. They need to know how they're going to market it. Um, Readers need to know what kind of book that they're buying. They want to know what to expect. Readers obviously like different genres more than they like other genres. But to me, um, everything that I've ever written, I mean, you're right in that I've 
been featured in things like Best of Horror and Sci-Fi and Fantasy, but to me, all those stories are the same. They have the same underlying themes. The only difference really is usually in terms of the setting or the time period or something like that. They yeah. are all, to me, psychological thrillers. That's what I set out to write. I set out to write stories about about people, usually people in very difficult um, situations. Um, I write a lot about relationships, family, um, and and lovers, and and the, the sort of terrible things that we do to each other, and also the really wonderful things that we do for each other. And all those stories are the same. I mean, a couple would it been yeah, a couple of years ago, um, I sold a story to Tor McMillan in the US called Skinner Box. And it was a psychological thriller. That's what I thought when I was writing it. And it's about a married couple, um, they're scientists and they're in this absolutely dreadful marriage. He's very abusive, he's very cruel, he's very horrible. And he's also very clearly hiding something huge from his wife. And the wife is obviously very miserable. She has an absolute horrible life. And she starts having an affair with one of her colleagues, um, an engineer who is lovely to her, the complete opposite of her husband. Mm -hmm. And they start to kind of plan this life together. And I think in a lot of ways, it was a, a bit of a precursor to Mirrorland, you know, because it has similar yeah. themes. It's a love triangle. Um, you have these three people who are stuck in this place that they can't really escape and they can't really escape each other. And then underneath all of that is this huge, terrible secret that's going to come to the surface at some point. But um, Skinner Box um, was actually set on, on a spaceship and it was, um, they were, it was a spaceship that was kind of slingshotting yeah. around Jupiter when the story was being told to go back to Earth. And so purely because of that, of course, it was marketed as a sci-fi. Sci I mean, it kind of yeah. has to be, it takes place in space, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's a psychological thriller to me. I mean, when, when I wrote Mirrorland or when I sat down to write it, I wanted to write a psychological thriller. But I wanted it to be very, to feel very gothic. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be present day, but I wanted it to feel gothic. So I wanted it to feel a bit like uh, Rebecca meets the haunting of Hill House, you know. Yeah. And I also wanted it to be a whodunit. Um, but then you also have this this other element of Mirrorland itself, which is the the kind of fantasy world that the two sisters, Kat and Elle, create as children underneath the house, the big scary house that they live in. And they go down there um, mostly at night to escape something. Um, and that adds another element as well, because technically, because it's a fantasy world, that, that, that's fantasy or magic realism or, or whatever you want to call it. So when you look at it as a whole, it's about an awful lot of things. But to me, it's really just a psychological thriller. Yeah. Um, and, and I think when I sit down to, to, to write, uh, particularly when I sit down to write novels, I try not to think about how it will be marketed. I try not to think about what the publishers want. Um, I just try to write a story that I think people will really love to read. And I try not to think about, you know, what shelf it will go on in a bookshop or anything like that. Because I think once you start down that road, you really start to second guess yourself. And yeah. Uh, it's difficult. So it's, I, I just, I have an idea. I think about it lots and then I just kind of sit down and write it. But I think all of my stories, no matter what, have the same sort of underlying themes. 
um, about people, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then you touched on it there a little bit, but um, Maryland is the name of the, of the novel, obviously, but it's also the setting of a lot of the story, either yeah. in the past as the main character Cat reflects back on, or, or, or on the present as Cat returns from America um, later in life uh, to Edinburgh and the old house for the, she grew up in with her twin sister. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Maryland, the place? Yeah, yeah, so you're right. So, so Maryland itself is, um, like I said in the last question, it's this fantasy world that, that Kat and Elle create when they're, when they're very young. And it's a place underneath the, the big sort of scary house that they live in and the scary life that they live. And it's a place that they go to mostly at night time to escape things that I can't tell you about because that's a big spoiler. But, um, but yeah, it, it was very much based on, you know, the, the sort of the Tim Burton-esque kind of fantasy worlds that I grew up reading about and, and watching, you know, places like Wonderland and Neverland and Narnia, all those kind of things. Yeah. And kids, they have really fiendish imaginations. Um, and the things that they imagine are, are almost always quite dark. You know, they're always magical, <laughs> but they're always quite, quite dark. And they have this kind of edge of scary. Kids like to be scared but yeah. in a safe sort of way. And I think that that's what these kind of fantasy worlds and make-believe um, do. They, they, they really sort of set that up. And so that was kind of my thinking behind, behind Maryland itself. And also the, the, the house that Kat and Elle live in, in Leith in Edinburgh, and to an extent Maryland itself, were all very much based on my grandparents' house, um, which was... <laughs> also in Leith um, and my sister and I we grew up we spent so much time growing up there in the kind of 80s and 90s it was a it was a, a really strange house I mean we lived in a very sensible bungalow in Kirlik and we would go to <laughs> to to this house every holiday every summer every Christmas every Easter it was um, it wasn't a particularly big house but it was about 200 years old it was Georgian and it was just very, very eccentric. At the very beginning of, of, of the book, of the hardback of Maryland, there are floor plans. Yeah. It's a kind of ground floor and a first floor. And that's exactly out of my grandparents' house. Oh, really? Exactly the same. And even the things that were in their house, I just kind of stole completely and stuck in, in the book. So every, every room was kind of crammed full of a mismatched furniture and, and every wall was covered in plates you know there wasn't a spare sort of space of wall the um the dining room had out these weird kind of thrones that you sat on there was um a tiled art deco bar in the drawing room and they had this no longer used um servant bell pool system Mm-hmm. in the house it was like well it actually it was a victorian it was electronic so you had little buttons that you pressed in every room and it was there was a board in the kitchen that would they would have a star above each room and they would swing you know so it was great yeah. to play with that when you were kids <laughs> but in Mirrorland, i made it more like downton abbey you know where you have like the bells in the kitchen that ring when somebody pulls a bell pull in, in each room because it's creepy you know it's really scary yeah even um, outside, you know, there was a big walled garden 
um, in the back of the house that had an orchard. And in Mirrorland, there is um, a, a, an apple tree called Old Fred that we used to climb. I mean, he existed. And even um, Mirrorland itself, which in the book is a kind of stone wash house in the back garden that follows on into this kind of covered over alleyway that runs the length of the side of the house. All those things existed, they were real. That slightly embellished in the book, but, but it still existed. And in, in my grandparents' house, there was this really creepy room um, at the back of the house called the sewing room. It was almost under the stairs. It was the kind of room you kept forgetting existed. And it had this huge cupboard um, at, the, at the end of it. And I used to, we played a lot of games like hide and seek and sardines and things like that in that house because it was built for it. And that was my favorite hiding place was this huge cupboard. And the back wall of that cupboard kind of went down or, or faced that alleyway in the wash house at the side of the house. And my, my whole childhood, I remember that there was this huge door yeah. in the back wall of the cupboard. You know, I, I remember it exactly. I remember what it looked like. Um, it was a normal sized door, just like all the other doors in the house. It was painted white. Um, it had one of those ceramic handles that kind of rattles, you know, when you turn it and it was always locked. And I remember as a kid, always thinking, why is this door here? Why is there a door in this cupboard? And why is it in the outside wall of the house? You know, on the other side of it, I knew it was just the alleyway that was maybe about eight feet underneath. Mm -hmm. And, um, I always believed, you know, that one day it would open up and off it go and I'd have a big adventure, you know, like in the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, because otherwise, why else <laughs> was it there, you know? And so when I had the idea for Mirrorland, I thought, why don't I have that be the door to Mirrorland? You know, they go through this door, they climb down into this alleyway, and then they're in Mirrorland. And um, I remember talking to my mum about it, because obviously that was the house she, she grew up in. Yeah. And she, she gave me this really funny look and she said, but there wasn't a door in the back of the cupboard. Why on earth would there have been a, you know, a door in the back of a cupboard? That doesn't make any sense. And I remember thinking uh, it was like a really big shock. I can't describe it. It's a really big memory of mine. It's a really huge memory. I completely believed it. And then as soon as she kind of said that, I thought, yeah, she has a point. You know, why would there be a door? And it never occurred to me to question it, even as an adult, you know, why why did this exist and so that was really the kind of final I suppose plot point for Mirrorland was this idea that our childhood memories are weird and a lot of the time what we believe in our entire lives to be true isn't necessarily true you know a lot of our memories are completely false we just don't realize that they are um, and particularly childhood memories um, are so ingrained almost that you never question something that is completely bizarre and that really became the character of Kat, you know, all these things that have gone on in this house. And she chooses to interpret them in a completely different way because her memories are not real. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was a very, very long answer. I'm sorry. No, I, I, was, I was just thinking whenever you were saying about your grand's house and having a creepy room, I, I was actually just thinking about back to my, my grand's house. I think it must be a grand house thing. I think there must be just a creepy room in, in most grand's houses that you that you have that memory about. And 
because I kind of felt that little bit as well, and or, or a cupboard or something like that, like you say, yeah. right, that, that you're never allowed in, and you always kind of wonder why am I not allowed in that cupboard? What, what's, what's going on there? <laughs> exactly. But, uh, <laughs> now, Mirrorland, the story uh, is quite, uh, it's quite the story. There's twists and turns throughout the whole entire book, and I felt as a reader as I was going through it, and I think that the main character Cat felt this a little bit as well. Um, is that it was really difficult to trust anyone in the story, and was that something that you tried to achieve whenever you were writing the story? Yes, I really, really love stories that have an unreliable narrator, um, and I also really love it when you don't quite know who anybody else is. You know, you don't know who's a goodie, you don't know who's a baddie, you don't actually mm. know an awful lot of what's going on. But I think with unreliable narrators, you have to be really careful because there's it's good up until a point, but you don't want the narrator to be completely unreliable. You don't want them to be totally erratic. I think that um, as a reader, I kind of want to be kept in the dark initially, but only yeah. up to a certain point. Quite quickly, I want to start to feel like I'm learning things, that I'm working stuff out. I don't want to be completely confused for 90% of the book. And then at the end, there's this great big you know, surprise, this is what it was all about. I, I don't like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think that if you do it right, if you manage to balance kind of mystery versus discovery, I always kind of try and think of it that way, to have some mystery, some something that makes you want to keep reading. But at the same time, you have to give the readers something all the time you know you have to make every chapter they, they have to feel like they've learned a wee bit more than they knew the last time yeah. and I think some books do that really well so the most obvious example is Gone Girl yeah. I mean Gone Girl has an as a central character a really unreliable narrator you just don't know that she is you know you think that she's a victim you think that she's a wronged wife you you worry that something awful has happened to her and then of course by the time you get to the end of the novel all of that is completely turned on its head mm -hmm. or something like one of my favorite novels um when I was growing up was I Am Legend by, oh, yeah. by Richard Matheson I loved it and it's you know you've got um uh, what's it called Robert Neville um living in this kind of post-pandemic world of full of vampires you know he's a lone survivor soul survivor so he thinks and he spends his days killing as many vampires as he can and then he spends his nights kind of barricaded in his house trying to stay alive yeah and then you know at the end of the book um this is a big spoiler <laughs> <laughs> it's been out a long time <laughs> <laughs> that's very true <laughs> he kind of has this 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 revelation this moment of realization where he realizes that actually in this new world you know um he's the baddie you know, the, the vampires are terrified of him. He's this guy that that, that that attacks all of them in when they're at their most vulnerable, their most defenseless. He's the boogeyman. He's the person that everybody in the world, apart from him, is afraid of. And I think that's great. I think that's so clever because one of the, the things that I love to write about and read about is, is where you start off thinking a certain thing about a person or people or an event and then through the book whether it's kind of subtly or whether it's because of a big twist or a big reveal your mind is completely changed either about a character 
or about something that's happened, you suddenly realise that you've got the, the complete opposite end of the stick. And I think that that's, I think that's really, really um, difficult to do. Like, um, oh, uh, you know, like in The Empire Strikes Back, that, yeah. that kind of scene when, um, when Darth Vader tells Luke Skywalker that he's his father. <laughs> like, I remember, see, when I was a kid, I remember um, being blown away by that because it's clever on two fronts, you know? It's clever because you never see it coming. I mean, yeah. it's a twist. But it's clever on a, a kind of a bigger level because it forces you to look at Darth Vader in an entirely different light. He's not yeah. just a baddie. He's not just a cardboard cutout. He's a, he, you know, he used to be a, per, a diff, completely different person. In fact, he used to be a goodie. And that, yeah. that's like a, it's, it's, it's hard to do right. But if you manage to do it, if you really manage to surprise people and to completely change their minds, that's, that's I don't know, that's the thing that I love most about, about writing. Yeah, I think like you say it's a difficult thing to do, right? And but if yeah. you do manage to do it, it really kind of sells the story so well, mm-hmm. and and makes a big difference to the to the to the reader or in Star Wars case of viewer. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, it's it definitely is, and uh, I think you definitely managed to do that with a lot a lot of uh, Maryland itself. Um, oh, thank some you. Great, great reveals and that and things like that and, and that. Now, there is quite a large cast in the book I, I felt um some some of the characters are make are make believe in, in Maryland um and others are real life characters that Kat either encounters um for the first time um or already knew um after when she's come when she's come back from Edinburgh um was that was something that was difficult to keep track of as you, as you were writing to kind of make sure that all the characters kind of made sense and 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 kind of were quite defined. Not not too much. Um, there actually originally were a lot more characters um, that were cut at various stages along the line. I think, I mean, obviously you have the, the three main characters and Kat and Ellen Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have the two detectives who are, who are trying to find out what's happened to Elle, where she's gone, you know, is she alive or is she dead? Um, then you have th- three of Elle's friends and really for Kat they're the the only other people other than Ross that she can speak to to find out about Elle I mean they've been estranged Mm -hmm. for 12 years she knows nothing about her life and then like you say there's there's all the kind of weird and wonderful characters that live in Mirrorland this sort of make-believe characters there but actually by the end there were because there were so so few characters compared to to what it started out with that wasn't that hard to keep track of the hardest thing for me to keep track of were all the kind of twists and and turns throughout the book um like I said I don't I'm not a big fan of books that have just one big massive twist at the end um because I do find that a lot of the time those books are quite a hard slog to read you know 90% of them are just building up to this big twist so it can be quite hard it can be even boring at at times to read and I wanted to write a story that had lots of clues along the way lots of kind of breadcrumbs but also lots of reveals and surprises you know there's a really big twist kind of halfway through the book for example but to do that, in order to do that, you if you're going to do twists, they're quite hard to, to, to keep track of, but they're also quite hard to, to execute, I suppose, because you mm-hmm. have to make sure that every character stays 
in character that they don't do something completely bizarre and out of character just because you, your story wants them to. Yeah. You know, you, you have to make sure that every twist is completely believable no matter how, how sort of mad it is. It, it all has to make sense. And to do that, you have to put a lot of clues in all the way through a lot of, of things that people might not necessarily pick up on on a first read but then if they went back again afterwards they say ah you know that's what that is you have to kind of foreshadow a lot of stuff and to do that that's an awful lot of planning yeah. I mean unless unless you want to write you know about 50 drafts of a novel which I don't <laughs> want to do you know you have to plan so so that was the thing that I found the hardest to keep track of I think I spent maybe oh three months minimum just planning the story outlining it researching it doing all that kind of stuff and then maybe another three to four months after that just writing the first couple of drafts so at least 50 percent or possibly up to about 50 percent of the time was just planning it so that was by far the hardest thing to keep track of yeah yeah let's uh, go a little bit kind of into the story uh, as well um Obviously, there are a lot of twists and turns, which we'll, we'll try and not reveal um, because, <laughs> because it's obviously not so good for any readers to get into it. But but Kat's twin sister L goes missing. You find that out kind of basically at the start of the book. Um, everyone kind of assumes that she's dead in a boating accident, except for Kat, and that is. And she starts receiving messages that she believes to be from L, and it starts a treasure hunt. And that and that is a dive back back into the, the past, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I wanted to use the treasure hunt device, well, for a couple of reasons, really, because um, my wee sister and I used to do them all the time when we were kids. I was always the one that made it up. <laughs> she was always the one that had to go in and find, um, you know, find the clues. Um, but also, I realised quite early on, it's a really good a, a device to reveal things kind of piecemeal you know bit by bit slowly yeah. you can have a clue every once every chapter you know that will that will move the story along but not so fast that you're revealing everything at once and when Kat um when she comes back to the house you know she she doesn't want to come back she's she's living in LA she has a completely different life she um she's estranged from from her sister she hasn't seen or spoken to her for 12 years she just doesn't want to be there she doesn't want to go back to this awful house that they grew up in she doesn't want to confront any of the, the things that happened to them in their childhood she doesn't want to confront anything the, the reasons why they're not speaking she doesn't want to confront even her relationship with her sister's husband Ross, which is incredibly complicated. Um, so she, she, she's just in denial about everything. And so what I thought was the only way really to make her start to face things, start to remember the things that she doesn't want to remember is to, she's already in a house that she's afraid of, is to kind of bombard her with more of her childhood. So the treasure hunt is part of her childhood. It's something that she and Elle used to do. Um, the clues unlock kind of memories that she doesn't want to remember. Mm-hmm. And each one kind of drives her closer and closer to Mirrorland, to this to this fantasy world that they created under the house, because that's what she's the most frightened of for reasons. And so, you know, the, the whole sort of thing is, is geared towards driving her closer and closer and closer to having no choice 
but to confront everything that's happened to her. And I think the treasure hunt did that in a way that I thought of tried to think of lots of different ways to do it. And that was the one that I kept coming back to because it was the most effective, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And as you as you mentioned there a little bit about one of the other characters there, um there is an unusual relationship with with um Elle's husband, Ross, who mm-hmm. they've known as from childhood. Um isn't a, it's a very strange relationship that they've had all the way through. Yes. Um it's a very complicated relationship. And again, it's the sort of true nature of it is only revealed bit by bit as you go through through the novel. Ross was a really um, fun character to, to write about. I really liked writing about him because he is quite complicated. And it's the, it's the whole Darth Vader thing again. You do not know if he is a giddy <laughs> or if he's a baddie. You have no idea because he appears yeah. to, to be both at different times in the novel. Um, and it's clear fairly early on that when Kat returns, that there is some kind of history between between them. You're just not initially sure exactly what. Um, I think one, one of my favorite things to sort of, uh, to read about and to write about are, are love triangles. I really, really love, love them. <laughs> I think that they're, they're a great plot device because the, they're a really great way of getting a reader emotionally invested very quickly because everybody kind of has an opinion, you know, you immediately start rooting for one person in it and you immediately start hating somebody else. You want them to get (laughs) their comeuppance, you know? Um, And of course, love triangles, they're all about kind of lust and love and betrayal and, and, and revenge, you know, they're, they're very closely, married I suppose to revenge plots which are another really favorite thing of mine I love revenge plots because they're so satisfying you know it means that you're already very emotionally invested in characters before you even really know them that much you know you're either very for or very against someone so in that sense they're great to write about um they also are able to drive a story and to drive your opinions on people and on what has happened um, when in reality you might not actually know the truth. You're just kind of getting carried on this kind of wave of, I don't know, outrage or, you know, whatever. I think that they're incredibly great to write about, but I think that they're also quite complicated. Um, and obviously the, the, the extra kind of layer to Mirrorland is that Kat and Elle are identical twins. Yeah. You know, they're, well, they're, they're, they're mirror twins, which means that they're mirror images of each other. So, you know, whatever you see in the mirror is what they see. And um, in that sense, if you think of a love triangle with identical twins, it's even more complicated because <laughs> what separates those two sisters is their personalities rather than, than what they look like and yeah i mean it's pretty mean really to, to, it's 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 going to create all sorts of problems because you're not just related to each other you know you're incredibly incredibly close to each other yeah and one of the things that i loved about the book and this isn't so much a, um a major thing for story-wise i think but it was just a little little touch i think was that there was lots of references in it to the Shawshank Redemption and Andy Dufresne, mm. um, which is my all-time favourite movie. And, of course, it is a Stephen Novella book, a Stephen King novella, uh, novella as well. Um, what made you want to include them in, in the story? I um, 
Well, I love Stephen King. I've always loved Stephen King. I think he 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 definitely was my first kind of writer crush. You know, <laughs> I first discovered him, I think, when I was about 13, 14. And you know, I just I loved everything that he wrote from the very, very beginning. Um, I was writing short stories at that time on and off and trying to write these dreadful novels. And everything that I wrote after I discovered him for years was basically me trying to sound as much like Stephen King as I possibly <laughs> could. You know, I just copied everything that he did. And um, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you did this in school, but and I can't remember what age I was, but at some point, probably when it was about 14, 15, I had to do something in English called an RPR. Mm-hmm. I don't to this day know what it stands for, but you had to basically pick a, a, a fictional book of your choice anything that you wanted and you had to write a kind of literary critique on it yeah was it response um, to personal writing or something or reading is that what, yeah, that response is, to is, personal reading i think it was <laughs> that, that definitely so, something, like that. something like that <laughs> and i picked misery which was one of the the very first stephen king books i'd read and i and i wrote this this rpr and the, the teacher read it and she sent it off to the to the scottish exam board um to be graded and it came back very quickly. And, and they said, this is a very inappropriate book to, to write. <laughs> you cannot do it. You have to pick something else. Um, I think in the end, well, I know in the end, they made me um, pick Lord of the Flies, which actually to me is not a dissimilar yeah. book. You know, it's yeah. just about 30 years older or something. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, ever since then, I just absolutely loved him. I think the thing that I admire about him the most is that he writes across so many genres, you know, so he writes horror, he writes fantasy, sci-fi, crime, um, psychological thriller, non-fiction. But I think the the stories of his that I love the most are the kind of non-genre ones. My favourite book of his is um, a collection of four novellas called Different Seasons. Yeah. And Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption is obviously one of them. Yeah. And it is it is one of my completely favourite stories of his. I mean, it's only about, I think it's about 100 pages or something. It's really short, but it packs so much, I don't know, so much story and so many emotions into such a small sort of uh, amount of writing. You know, it's um, it's it's seen as a very uplifting and happy almost book but you know 90% of it is dark you know 90% <laughs> of it is awful terrible things happen it's about injustice and and abuse and betrayal and you know it's incredibly sad it's about all these institutionalized men who never really have much of a chance in life um, and then of course it's also about um, hope and patience and friendship and love and you know escape and you yeah. know, redemption I suppose it, whenever I kind of sit and read it or, or watch it which I do all the time I always feel the same emotions all over again you know I know it's going to happen but you it really makes you feel stuff and when I um ever whenever I kind of sit down and write something even if it's just a short story or a novel it's one of the stories that I keep in my head all the time because I want to write something that's going to make me feel or make other readers feel what I felt when I read that story 
I think that that's one of his greatest kind of skills, really, no matter what he's writing about. And um, I remember, so I used a quote from Shawshank Redemption at the beginning of Mirrorland. And I remember that my um, US publisher, Scribner, um, they sent him a copy of the proof. So like publishers, yeah. a few months before a hardback comes out, they produce uncorrected proofs and they send them out to dozens of, of higher profile writers in the hopes that maybe a couple <laughs> of them will read them and then, then they'll maybe um, like them. And then if they like them, they'll maybe give you a quote that you can put on the cover of the hardback or the paperback or whatever. And, and they told me that they sent one to him among lots of other people. And I didn't really think anything of it because I know he gets sent thousands of these yeah. things. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm not even going to think about it. So I genuinely did forget about it. And then a few months later, my editor, um, my then editor at Scribner, Valerie, um, said, oh, he's got it and he says he's going to read it. And I kind of, you know, for about a day, I was running around telling everybody this is the most exciting <laughs> thing that's ever happened. And then, um, <laughs> and then I really kind of came back down to earth. I, I'm a big catastrophizer. I'm a very much not a kind of look on the bright side of life sort of person, just the opposite. And I suddenly thought, God, what if he hates it? What am I going to do? You know, or what if what if I never hear anything again? You know, what if I just never know if he liked it or, or he didn't like it? There's just nothing. And this, I think it was weeks and weeks later, my editor phoned me from New York and she never phones me. She always emails. She only ever phones if she has really good news or really bad news. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God. So I spoke to her. And the first thing that she said was, Stephen King loves Mirrorland and he's going to give you a quote you know for the cover yeah and then she kind of read out the quote that he'd he'd given her and um the first sort of line was I loved Mirrorland and then I just kind of blanked for the rest of the conversation <laughs> I don't that, remember that a enough. word of it <laughs> and it almost it sounds so silly but it almost means more to me um than being published you know that when I look at my book now you know it's 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 my book and it's got my name on it but it's got this quote from Stephen King on it as well and it's just it's huge because I can't kind of overestimate how how influential he's been on me or how much I've loved him he's 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 one of these writers that I feel has been in my life almost my whole life you know it's it's it was just a huge huge thing for me really huge thing yeah, and I mean, and it's, it's, it's a big draw as well. I mean, obviously, it's a selling tactic for publishers to do those kind of things and get those mm -hmm. quotes on you. But I mean, for for a a first novel um, to have a quote from Stephen King on it, it, it definitely draws your eye to it for sure. And and uh, and so it, it was pretty pretty. It must be a pretty good thing, good feeling to have to have Stephen King in your corner as a as a, a fan. It was, oh, <laughs> I remember thinking, well, if I saw a book with a Stephen King quote on, I'd buy it. <laughs> I do buy it. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it was really great. Fantastic. Now, since Spiralland is set in the midst of a backdrop of a very vivid make-believe land, I thought we'd kind of start to kind of round up our questions by asking you, did you like playing make-believe yourself growing up and hopefully under more happier circumstances though than, than in Spiralland? <laughs> Um, do you know, I, I've been asked this question a few times and I don't think I did. Well, 
I must have done, but I don't remember specifically um, doing it any more or less than, than any other kid. I remember um, in my grandparents' house um, with my sister and my cousins, we used to make up a lot of stories, a lot of games, because it was that kind of house, you know, yeah. that we would do that in. Our den really was the, the wash house in the alleyway where Mirrorland is. We could spend hours down there and we did create a a pirate ship and you know we, so we had all these games related to that house outside of the house I don't particularly remember as a kid I think um I was a big daydreamer I was inside my head a lot and my kind of playing make-believe was writing it down mm -hmm. you know was was making a story and so I think that that's what I've always done that's what I still do yeah. Um, I don't think any of it has changed. So I can't remember anything specific. I didn't have an imaginary friend as far as I remember or anything like that. <laughs> I just, every time I thought of something weird or fantastic, I would just put it in a story. <laughs> Good, fantastic. <laughs> and now um, your website hints a little bit that you're you're write, currently writing your second novel, um, which um, you're right at the moment, and it's it's an unusual murder mystery set in the Outer Hebrides, it says. So can you reveal a little bit any more about that yet, or is it still kind of in the early days? No, I can. Um, it's coming out in August, I think, next year, with um, Borough Press and HarperCollins in the UK. Um, it's also um, coming out in, U in the US and Canada, but I don't have a date for it yet, hopefully next year as well. But yeah, it's... Um, it's called the Black House. Uh, it's had lots of titles, but that's the that's the final one, I think. That's the one that it's, <laughs> it's going to be, and it's set in um, a, a sort of fictional satellite island um, off the west coast of the Isle of Lewis and Harris in the Outer Hebrides. Um, when, oh gosh, it must have been about two or three years ago, uh, I actually lived on the west coast of Lewis for maybe six seven months something like that I absolutely love it there and I wrote a lot of Mirrorland when I was there and um, while I was there I also had this idea for 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 the second book so it's yeah like you see it's a murder mystery um, it's actually two stories kind of told side by side so the the present day story is about a young woman called Maggie and she, she comes to this fictional island uh, to investigate the, the murder of a young man called Robert about 25 years ago. And then the second story is told from Robert's perspective. So it's about his, his life really um, on that island up until his, his death, his murder. And the, <laughs> the unusual part is the bit that I'm not allowed to tell you but, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it's it's basically to do with the very strange the very bizarre reason why Maggie has come to this island to investigate this death and it's it's quite a big reveal that that happens in the opening chapters so it's quite early on in the book um and actually the the paperback of Mirrorland which is out in January next year at the end of that, there is a kind of taster. There's the first couple of chapters of, of, of The Black House in there to kind of whet your appetite. Fantastic. Uh, is it full focus on that second book at the moment or is there anything exciting on the horizon for you other than the book? 
I've got absolutely juggling a lot of things. At the moment, I'm in final copy edits with my UK and US editor of The Black House. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm kind of gearing up, obviously, the paperback of Maryland, like I said, is out in January. So I'm kind of gearing up for the sort of promotional side of that. Um, I'm also um, on deadline for a couple of short stories, uh, one for uh, Macmillan in the US again and another one for a UK editor. I kind of, it took me 10 years, I think, to feel like I was any good at writing short stories. And <laughs> I really don't want to sort of go backwards. It's, it, it's one of these things you have to keep doing it. I feel like it would be really easy for me to forget how to do it. So whenever I have time or whenever I'm invited to, to, to write something for a short story collection or a magazine or whatever, I always try and say yes, because it's, it's difficult fitting it in around all my other deadlines, but I really, really want to be able to do it. So I have those two stories due, I think, around about January time as well. And then I'm starting to think about book three. Um, I've kind of got an idea in my head. I... I lived is actually going to be set in Essex in South Essex, um, which is a bit of a departure for me. I almost always write about Scotland, but I spent all of my 20s and my 30s living in Essex. So it's a big, huge chunk of my life. And there are very interesting parts of Essex, particularly on the coast. It's a really interesting place to write about. So I've kind of got an idea for that in my head. It's not written down anywhere. Um, so I have to plot that out and then hopefully once I get a spare, a spare minute, that's what I'll be doing next is trying to write that book. Brilliant. Um, well, thank you very much, Carol, for joining me on the podcast today. It's, it's been great chatting to you. Um, hopefully um, our listeners who have read the book have enjoyed hearing it and it may have inspired a few others to pick up the book as well and read it as well. Anyone who does ha- read it, am I right in thinking there's a short story you can get that's based in the Mirrorland series via your website if you sign up for the new yeah, newsletter. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, if you if you go to my my website, which is just caroljohnston.com, um, yeah, and you sign up to to my readers club, then you can get a free a free short story. That's it's almost like a sort of prequel to Mirrorland. It's, it's it stops just before Mirrorland starts. So if you've really enjoyed Mirrorland, you can get a little bit extra by joining <laughs> um, Carol's reading readers club on there as well but that's all uh, for my questions carol thank you very much for joining me and it's been great pleasure to chatting to you thank you very much for for inviting me chris it's been great fantastic So there you have it guys, thank you very much to Carol for joining us on our podcast today. I hope you have had a fantastic book week Scotland up to this point and do remember to check our website and our social media for all the digital content that you'll be able to check out as well which will remain on our social media and our website after book week Scotland finishes so do have a look through that and catch up with anything that you may have possibly missed. But that's all for me for now, guys. If you have enjoyed this episode of the podcast, do leave us a little bit of feedback on the podcast by using the hashtag, hashtag FLB podcast, or by using the email address librarypodcast at northland.gov.uk. But that's all for us for now, guys. And we'll be back again soon with more episodes soon. Bye-bye.